0: Section 1 of The Autobiography of Charles Darwin This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, Alexandria, Virginia, June 2009. The Autobiography of Charles Darwin, edited by his son Francis Darwin. Section 1. Preface My father's autobiographical recollections, given in the present chapter, were written for his children, and written without any thought that they would ever be published. To many this may seem an impossibility, but those who knew my father will understand how it was not only possible, but natural. The autobiography bears the heading, Recollections of the Development of My Mind and Character, and end with the following note, August three, eighteen seventy six. 1876. This sketch of my life was begun about May 28th at Hope Dean, Mr. Hensley Wedgwood House in Surrey. And since then, I have written for nearly an hour on most afternoon. It will easily be understood that, in a narrative of a personal and intimate kind, written for his wife and children, passages should occur which must here be omitted, and I have not thought it necessary to indicate where such omissions are made. It has been found necessary to make few corrections of obvious verbal slips, but the number of such alterations has been kept down to the minimum. Francis Darwin. Preface. A German editor having written to me for an account of the development of my mind and character with some sketch of my autobiography. I have thought that the attempt would amuse me, and might possibly interest my children or their children. I know that it would have interested me greatly to have read even so short and dull a sketch of the mind of my grandfather, written by himself, and what he thought and did, and how he worked. I have attempted to write the following account of myself, as if I were a dead man in another world looking back at my own life. Nor have I found this difficult, for life is nearly over with me. I have taken no pains about my style of writing. I was born at Shrewsbury on February twelfth, eighteen 1809, and my earliest recollection goes back only to when I was a few months over four years old, when we went near Aberjeel for sea bathing, and I recollect some events and places there with some little distinctness. My mother died in July 1817, when I was a little over eight years old, and it is odd that I can remember hardly anything about her, except her deathbed, her black velvet gown, and her curiously constructed work table. In the spring of the same year, I was sent to a day school in Shrewsbury, where I stayed a year. I have been told that I was much slower in learning than my younger sister, Catherine, and I believe that I was in many ways a naughty boy. By the time I went to this day school, kept by Reverend G. Case, minister of the Unitarian Chapel in the High Street, Mrs. Darwin was a Unitarian and attended Mr. Case's chapel, and my father as a little boy went there with his elder sisters. But both he and his brother were christened and intended to belong to the Church of England and after his early boyhood, he seems usually to have gone to church and not to miss their cases. It appears, St. James' Gazette, December 15, 1883, that a mural tablet has been erected to his memory in the chapel, which is known as the Free Christian Church. My taste for natural history, and more especially for collecting, was well developed. I tried to make out the names of plants. Reverend W. A. Leighton, who is a schoolfellow of my father's at Mr. Case's school, remembers his bringing a flower to school and saying that his mother had taught him how, by looking at the inside of the blossom, the name of the plant could be discovered. Mr. Leighton goes on. This greatly roused my attention and curiosity, and I inquired of him repeatedly how this could be done. But his lesson was naturally enough, not transmissible. Francis Darwin And I collected all sorts of things, shells, seals, francs, coins, and minerals. The passion for collecting, which leads a man to be a systematic naturalist, a virtuoso, or a miser, was very strong in me, and was clearly innate, as none of my sister or brother even had this taste. One little event during this year has fixed itself very firmly in my mind, and I hope that it has done so from my conscience, having been afterwards sorely troubled by it. It is curious as showing that, apparently, I was interested at this early age in the variability of plants. I told another little boy, I believe it was Leighton, who afterwards became a well-known lichenologist and botanist, that I could produce variously colored polyanthuses, and primroses by watering them with certain colored fluids, which was of course a monstrous failure, and had never been tried by me. I may here also confess that, as a little boy, I was much given to inventing deliberate falsehoods, and this was always done for the sake of causing excitement. For instance, I once gathered much valuable fruit from my father's trees, and hid it in the shrubbery, and then ran in breathless haste to spread the news that I had discovered a horde of stolen fruit. I must have been a very simple little fellow when I first went to the school. A boy of the name of Garnett took me into a cake shop one day, and bought some cakes for which he did not pay, as the shopman trusted him. When we came out, I asked him why he did not pay for them, and he instantly answered, "'Why?' Do you not know that my uncle left a great sum of money to the town on condition that every tradesman should give whatever was wanted without payment to anyone who wore his old hat and moved it in a particular manner? And he then showed me how it was moved. He then went into another shop where he was trusted and asked for some small article, moving his hat in the proper manner, and of course obtained it without payment. When we came out, he said, Now if you like to go by yourself into that cake shop, how well I remember its exact position, I will lend you my hat, and you can get whatever you like if you move the hat on your head properly. I gladly accepted the generous offer and went in and asked for some cakes, moved the old hat, and was walking out of the shop when the shopman made a rush at me. So I dropped the cakes and ran for dear life and was astonished by being greeted with shouts of laughter by my false friend Garnett. I can say in my own favor that I was as a boy humane, but I owe this entirely to the instruction and example of my sisters. I doubt indeed whether humanity is a natural or innate quality. I was very fond of collecting eggs, but I never took more than a single egg out of a bird's nest, except on one single occasion. When I took all, not for their value, but from a sort of bravado, I had a strong taste for angling, and would sit for any number of hours on the bank of a river or pond, watching the float, when at Mare, the house of his uncle, Josiah Wedgwood, I was told that I could kill the worms with salt and water, and from that day I never spitted a living worm, though at the expense of probably of, some loss of success. Once as a very little boy, whilst at the day school, or before that time, I acted cruelly, for I beat a puppy, I believe, simply from enjoying a sense of power. But the beating could not have been severe, for the puppy did not howl, of which I feel sure, as the spot was near the house. The act lay heavily on my conscience, as is shown by my remembering the exact spot where the crime was committed. It probably lay all the heavier for my love of dogs being then, and for a long time afterwards, a passion. Dogs seem to know this, for I was an adept in robbing their love from their masters. I remember clearly one other incident during this year while at Mr. Case's daily school, namely the burial of a dragoon soldier, and it is surprising how clearly I can still see the horse with the man's empty boots and carbine suspended to the saddle and the firing over the grave. This scene deeply stirred whatever poetic fancy there was in me. In the summer of eighteen eighteen, I went to Dr. Butler's Great School in Shrewsbury, and remained there for seven years still midsummer eighteen twenty-five, when I was sixteen years old. I boarded at this school, so that I had the great advantage of living the life of a true schoolboy. But as the distance was hardly more than a mile to my home, I very often ran there in the longer intervals between the callings over and before locking up at night. This, I think, was in many ways advantageous to me by keeping up home affections and interests. I remember in the early part of my school life that I often had to run very quickly to be in time, and from being a fleet runner was generally successful. But when in doubt, I prayed earnestly to God to help me, and I well remember that I attributed my success to the prayers, and not to my quick running, and marveled how generally I was aided. I have heard my father and elder sisters say that I had, as a very young boy, a strong taste for long, solitary walks, but what I thought about I knew not. I often became quite absorbed, and once, while returning to school on the summit of the old fortifications round Shrewsbury, which had been converted into a public footpath with no parapet on one side, I walked off and fell to the ground, but the height was only seven or eight feet. Nevertheless, the number of thoughts which passed through my mind during this very short but sudden and wholly unexpected fall was astonishing, and seemed hardly compatible with what physiologists have, I believe, proved about each thought requiring quite an appreciable amount of time. Nothing could have been worse for the development of my mind than Dr. Butler's school, as it was strictly classical, nothing else being taught, except a little ancient geography and history. The school as a means of education to me was simply a blank. During my whole life I have been singularly incapable of mastering any language. Especial attention was paid to verse-making, and this I could never do well. I had many friends, and got together a good collection of old verses, which by patching together, sometimes aided by other boys, I could work into any subject. Much attention was paid to learning by heart the lessons of the previous day. This I could effect with great facility learning forty or fifty lines of Virgil or Homer, while I was in morning chapel. But this exercise was utterly useless, for every verse was forgotten in forty-eight hours. I was not idle, and with the exception of versification, generally worked conscientiously at my classics, not using cribs. The sole pleasure I ever received from such studies was from some of the Odes of Horace, which I admired greatly. When I left the school, I was for my age neither high nor low in it, and I believe that I was considered by all my masters and my father as a very ordinary boy, rather below the common standard in intellect. To my deep mortification, my father once said to me, You care for nothing but shooting, dogs, and rat-catching, and you will be a disgrace to yourself and of all your family. But my father, who is the kindest man I ever knew and whose memory I love with all my heart, must have been angry and somewhat unjust when he used such words. Looking back as well as I can at my character during my school life, the only qualities which at this period promised well for the future, were, that I had strong and diversified tastes, much zeal for whatever interested me, and a keen pleasure in understanding any complex subject or thing. I was taught Euclid by a private tutor, and I distinctly remember the intense satisfaction which the clear geometrical proofs gave me. I remember, with equal distinctness, the delight which my uncle gave me the father of Francis Galton, by explaining the principle of the vernier of a barometer. With respect to diversified tastes, independently of science, I was fond of reading various books, and I used to sit for hours reading historical plays of Shakespeare, generally in an old window in the thick walls of the school. I read also other poetry, such as Thompson's Seasons, and the recently published poems of Byron and Scott. I mention this because later in life I wholly lost, to my great regret, all pleasure from poetry of any kind, including Shakespeare. In connection with pleasure from poetry, I may add that in 1822, a vivid delight in scenery was first awakened in my mind. During a riding tour on the borders of Wales, and this has lasted longer than any other aesthetic pleasure. Early in my school days, a boy had a copy of The Wonders of the World, which I often read, and disputed with other boys about the veracity of some of the statements, and I believe that this book first gave me a wish to travel in remote countries, which was ultimately fulfilled in The Voyage of the Beagle. In the latter part of my school life, I became passionately fond of shooting. I do not believe that any one could have shown more zeal for the most holy cause than I did for shooting birds. How well I remember killing my first snipe, and my excitement was so great that I had much difficulty in reloading my gun from the trembling of my hand. This taste long continued, and I became a very good shot. When at Cambridge, I used to practice throwing up my gun to my shoulder before a looking-glass to see that I threw it up straight. Another and better plan was to get a friend to wave about a lighted candle and then to fire at it with a cap on the nipple, and if the aim was accurate, the little puff of air would blow out the candle. The explosion of the cap caused a sharp crack, and I was told that the tutor of the college remarked, what an extraordinary thing it is, Mr. Darwin seems to spend hours in cracking a horsewhip in his room, for I often hear the crack when I pass under his windows. I had many friends amongst the schoolboys, whom I loved dearly, and I think that my disposition was then very affectionate. With respect to science, I continued collecting minerals with much zeal, but quite unscientifically. All that I cared about was a new named mineral, and I hardly attempted to classify them. I must have observed insects with some little care, for when ten years old, in 1819, I went for three weeks to Ploss Edwards on the sea coast in Wales. I was very much interested and surprised at seeing a large black and scarlet hemipterous insect, many moths. and a sicandella, which are not found in Shropshire. I almost made up my mind to begin collecting all the insects which I could find dead, for on consulting my sister, I concluded that it was not right to kill insects for the sake of making a collection. From reading White's Selborne, I took much pleasure in watching the habits of birds, and even made notes on the subject. In my simplicity, I remember wondering why every gentleman did not become an ornithologist. Towards the close of my school life, my brother worked hard at chemistry and made a fair laboratory with proper apparatus in the tool house in the garden, and I was allowed to aid him as a servant in most of his experiments. He made all the gases and many compounds, and I read with great care several books on chemistry such as Henry and Park's Chemical Catechism. The subject interested me greatly, and we often used to go on working till rather late at night. This was the best part of my education at school, for it showed me practically the meaning of experimental science. The fact that we worked at chemistry somehow got known at school, and as it was an unprecedented fact, I was nicknamed Gas. I was also once publicly rebuked by the headmaster, Dr. Butler, for thus wasting my time on such useless subjects, and he called me very unjustly a poco curante, and as I did not understand what he meant, it seemed to me a fearful reproach. As I was doing no good at school, my father wisely took me away at a rather earlier age than usual and sent me, October 1825, to Edinburgh University with my brother, where I stayed for two years or sessions. My brother was completing his medical studies, though I do not believe he ever really intended to practice, and I was sent there to commence them. But soon after this period, I became convinced, from various small circumstances, that my father would leave me property enough to subsist on with some comfort, though I never imagined that I should be so rich a man as I am, but my belief was sufficient to check any strenuous efforts to learn medicine. The instruction at Edinburgh was altogether by lectures, and these were intolerably dull, with the exception of those on chemistry by hope. But to my mind, there are no advantages and many disadvantages in lectures compared with reading. Dr. Duncan's lectures on Materia Medica at 8 o'clock on a winter's morning are something fearful to remember. Dr. Blank made his lectures on human anatomy as dull as he was himself, and the subject disgusted me. It has proved one of the greatest evils in my life. That I was not urged to practice dissection, for I should soon have got over my disgust, and the practice would have been invaluable for all my future work. This has been an irremediable evil, as well as my incapacity to draw. I also attended regularly the clinical wards in the hospital. Some of the cases distressed me a good deal, and I still have vivid pictures before me, of some of them. But I was not so foolish as to allow this to lessen my attendance. I cannot understand why this part of my medical course did not interest me in a greater degree. For during the summer, before coming to Edinburgh, I began attending some of the poor people, chiefly children and women, in Shrewsbury. I wrote down as full an account as I could, of the case, with all the symptoms, and read them aloud to my father, who suggested further inquiries and advised me what medicines to give, which I made up myself. At one time, I had at least a dozen patients, and I felt a keen interest in the work. My father, who was by far the best judge of character whom I ever knew, declared that I should make a successful physician, meaning by this one who would get many patients. He maintained that the chief element of success was exciting confidence, but what he saw in me which convinced him that I should create confidence I knew not. I also attended on two occasions the operating theater in the hospital at Edinburgh and saw two very bad operations, one on a child but I rushed away before they were completed. Nor did I ever attend again, for hardly any inducement would have been strong enough to make me do so, this being long before the blessed days of chloroform. The two cases fairly haunted me for many a long year. My brother stayed only one year at the university, so that during the second year I was left to my own resources, And this was an advantage, for I became well acquainted with several young men fond of natural science. One of these was Ainsworth, who afterwards published his travels in Assyria. He was a Wernerian geologist, and knew a little about many subjects. Dr. Coldstream was a very different young man, prim, formal, highly religious, and most kind-hearted. He afterwards published some good zoological articles. A third young man was Hardy, who would, I think, have made a good botanist, but died early in India. Lastly, Dr. Grant, my senior by several years. But how I became acquainted with him I cannot remember. He published some first-rate zoological papers. But after coming to London as professor in university college, he did nothing more in science, a fact which has always been inexplicable to me. I knew him well. He was dry and formal in manner, with much enthusiasm beneath his outer crust. He one day, when we were walking together, burst forth in high admiration of Lamarck and his views on evolution. I listened in silent astonishment, and as far as I can judge, without any effect on my mind. I had previously read the Zoonomia of my grandfather, in which similar views are maintained, but without producing any effect on me. Nevertheless, it is probable that the hearing rather early in life such views, maintained and praised, may have favored my upholding them in a different form, in my origin of species. At this time I admired greatly the zoonomia, but on reading it a second time, after an interval of ten or fifteen years, I was much disappointed, the proposition of speculation being so large to the facts given. Doctors Grant and Coldstream attended much to marine zoology, and I often accompanied the former to collect animals in the tidal pools, which I dissected as well as I could. I also became friends with some of the New Haven fishermen, and sometimes accompanied them when they trawled for oysters, and thus got many specimens. But from not having had regular practice in dissection, and from possessing only a wretched microscope, my attempts were very poor. Nevertheless, I made one interesting little discovery, and read, about the beginning of the year 1826, a short paper on the subject before the Plinian Society. This was what the so-called ova of Flustra had the power of independent movement by means of cilia, and were in fact larvae. In another short paper, I showed that the little globular bodies, which had been supposed to be the young state of Fucus laureus were the egg cases of the worm-like Poncebtella muricida. The Plinian Society was encouraged, and, I believe, founded by Professor Jameson. It consisted of students and met in an underground room in the university for the sake of reading papers on natural science and discussing them. I used regularly to attend, and the meetings had a good effect on me in stimulating my zeal and giving me new congenial acquaintances. One evening, a poor young man got up, and after stammering for a prodigious length of time, blushing crimson, he at last slowly got out the words, Mr. President, I have forgotten what I was going to say. The poor fellow looked quite overwhelmed, and all the members were so surprised that no one could think of a word to say to cover his confusion. The papers which were read to our little society were not printed, so that I had not the satisfaction of seeing my paper in print, but I believe Dr. Grant noticed my small discovery in his excellent memoir on Flustra. I was also a member of the Royal Medical Society, and attended pretty regularly, as the subjects were exclusively medical. I did not care much about them. Much rubbish was talked there but there were some good speakers, of whom the best was the President Sir J. K. Shuttlewood. Dr. Grant took me occasionally to the meetings of the Wernerian Society, where various papers on natural history were read, discussed, and afterwards published in the transactions. I heard Audubon deliver there some interesting discourses on the habits of North American birds, sneering somewhat unjustly at Warranty. By the way, a Negro lived in Edinburgh who had traveled with Waterton and gained his livelihood by stuffing birds, which he did excellently. He gave me lessons for payment, and I used often to sit with him, for he was a very pleasant and intelligent man. Dr. Leonard Horner also took me once to a meeting of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, where I saw Sir Walter Scott in the chair as president and he apologized to the meeting as not feeling fitted for such a position. I looked at him and the whole scene with some awe and reverence, and I think it was owing to this visit during my youth, and to my having attended the Royal Medical Society, that I felt the honor of being elected a few years ago an honorary member in both these societies. More than any other similar honor, If I had been told at the time that I should one day have been thus honored, I declare that I should have thought it as ridiculous and improbable, as if I had been told that I should be elected king of England. During my second year at Edinburgh, I attended Dr. X's lectures on geology and zoology, but they were incredibly dull. The sole effect they produced on me was a determination never as long as I lived to read a book on geology, or in any way study the science. Yet I feel sure that I was prepared for a philosophical treatment of the subject, for an old Dr. Cotton in Shropshire, who knew a good deal about rocks, had pointed out to me two or three years previously a well-known large erratic boulder in the town of Shrewsbury, called the Bellstone. He told me there was no rock of the same kind nearer than Cumberland or Scotland, and he solemnly assured me that the world would come to an end before any one would be able to explain how this stone came where it now lay. This produced a deep impression on me, and I meditated over this wonderful stone, so that I felt the keenest delight when I first read of the action of icebergs in transporting boulders, and I gloried in the progress of geology. Equally striking is the fact that I, though now only 67 years old, heard the professor, in a field lecture at Salisbury Craigs, discoursing on a trap dyke, with amygdaloidal regions and the strata indurated on each side, with volcanic rocks all around us, say that it was a fissure, Filled with sediment from above, adding with a sneer that there were men who maintained that it had been injected from beneath in a molten condition. When I think of this lecture, I do not wonder that I determined never to attend to geology. From attending Dr. X's lectures, I became acquainted with the curator of the museum, Mr. MacVillagravy, who afterwards published a large and excellent book on the birds of Scotland, I had much interesting natural history talk with him, and he was very kind to me. He gave me some rare shells, for I at the time collected marine mollusca, but with no great zeal. My summer vacations during these two years were wholly given up to amusements, though I always had some book in hand, which I read with interest. During the summer of 1826, I took a long walking tour with two friends with knapsacks on our backs through north wales we walked thirty miles most days including one day the ascent of snowdon i also went with my sister on a riding tour in north wales a servant with saddle-bags carrying our clothes the autumns were devoted to shooting chiefly at mr owen's at woodhouse and at my uncle joe's josiah Wedgwood, the son of the founder of the Eturia Works. At Mayer, my zeal was so great that I used to place my shooting boots open beside my bedside when I went to bed, so as not to lose half a minute in putting them on in the morning. And on one occasion, I reached a distant part of the Mayer estate, on the 20th of August, for black game shooting, before I could see. Then I toiled on with the gamekeeper the whole day through the thick heat and young Scotch firs. I kept an exact record of every bird which I shot through the whole season. One day when shooting at Woodhouse with Captain Owen, the eldest son, and Major Hill, his cousin, afterwards Lord Berwick, both of them who I liked very much, I thought myself shamefully used, for every time after I had fired and thought I had killed a bird, one of the two acted as if loading his gun and cried out, You must not count that bird, for I fired at the same time. And the gamekeeper, perceiving the joke, backed them up. After some hours they told me the joke, but it was no joke to me, for I had shot a large number of birds, but did not know how many, and could not add them to my list, which I used to do by making a knot in a piece of string tied to a buttonhole. This my wicked friends had perceived. How I did enjoy shooting, but I think that I must have been half-consciously ashamed of my zeal, for I tried to persuade myself that shooting was almost an intellectual employment. It required so much skill to judge where to find the most game and to hunt the dogs well. One of my autumnal visits to Mayer in 1827 was memorable for meeting there Sir J. McIntosh was the best converser I ever listened to. I heard afterwards, with a glow of pride, that he had said, There is something in that young man that interests me. This must have been chiefly due to his perceiving that I listened with much interest to everything which he said. For I was as ignorant as a pig about his subjects of history, politics, and moral philosophy. To hear praise from an eminent person, though no doubt apt, or certain to excite vanity, is, I think, good for a young man, as it helps to keep him on the right course. My visits to Mare during these two or three succeeding years were quite delightful, independently of the autumnal shooting. Life there was perfectly free, the country was very pleasant for walking or riding, and in the evening there was much very agreeable conversation, not so personally as it generally is in large family parties, together with music. In the summer the whole family used often to sit on the steps of the old portico, with the flower garden in front, and with the steep wooded bank opposite the house reflected in the lake, with here and there a fish rising on a water bird paddling about. Nothing has left a more vivid picture on my mind than these evenings at Mare. I was also attached to and greatly revered my Uncle Joe's. He was silent and reserved, so as to be a rather awful man, but he sometimes talked openly with me. He was a very type of an upright man with the clearest judgment. I do not believe that any power on earth could have made him swerve an inch from what he considered the right course. I used to apply to him in my mind the well-known Ode of Horace, now forgotten by me. In which the words nec vultus tyranni, etc., come in. Justum et tenacem cross piti virum, non civium ardor prava juventium, non voltus instantis tyranni, menti qualitat solida. End of section one.